tuned in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio is also proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. You're listening to the DC Public Library on Full Service Radio from the Lion Hotel in Washington, D.C. I'm Victor, your host on this episode, our fifth one. This episode is part of the DC Public Library Present series, where the Studio Lab Express presents you with special content and stories from the library in Washington, D.C. Our guest today is Ray Barker. Ray is an archivist with special collections at the DC Public Library. Ray is a freelance writer and has been a resident of D.C. for over five years. Ray, you recently interviewed Andrew White, White at his home on Thursday, January 11th. Um, who is Andrew White? Um, how did you first meet Andrew? So Andrew is many things. He's a, Andrew's many things. He's a jazz multi-instrumentalist with classic training, a composer, arranger, writer, premier Coltrane, solo transcriptionist, and uh, in Andrew's words, a self-promoting businessman who's been doing that for over 50 years. So I met Andrew through an acquaintance uh, last August, early September, when I was first settling into my job in special collections with the DC Public Library. And so it turns out that Andrew lives just a couple of miles away from where we are uh, temporarily located, working in Northeast DC in Eckington, Bloomingdale neighborhood, uh, near the Metro Politan Branch Trail. It's the big building with the mural on the side. Um, so special collection staff is working out of there until we move back into the MLK location in 2020 when modernization right. is complete. That's great. And so I had been to Andrew's house a few times since then, purchased his 800-page, uh, uh, over 800-page uh, pages, autobiogra- his autobiography and a few of his compact disc recordings. And you read all of those 800 pages? I've read about eight pages of the 800 pages, <laughs> okay. but they were compelling eight pages. Um, so his life story, all 75 years of it, is an important one. And, uh, you know, Andrew, as a unique jazz figure in D.C. and in the, in the jazz world, has a, a long history. And I felt like he was a good, there was a good opportunity there to, to work with him. Uh, and he's also been a D.C. resident since 1960 and was, was born here and moved away to Nashville and came back to go to Howard University. Uh, so before we listen to the interview, let's listen to Shaft Blues from his 1974 record, Passion Fruit. That's great. Thank you. 
So that was Shaft Blues from Andrew White's Passion Fruit, his 1974 release. Up next is my interview with Andrew, recorded at his home Thursday, January 11th, 2018. Let's listen. Good afternoon, Andrew. How are you? Fine, thank you. Very happy to be here. Great. Happy to be here, too. You were born in Washington, D.C. and grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. Right. And you came back to D.C. in 1960. September of 60. And then what brought you back? Uh, I came back here to attend Howard University. Uh, My father had finished Howard back in the 40s. And uh, so it was just natural for him to, you know, try to persuade me to come to Howard. My mother's from Washington as well. He's from South Carolina. And uh, they met up here and had me. And uh, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, that was it. I came here to attend Howard. And uh, you got a degree in performance? No. Uh, my, my degree is a BMUS degree in music theory with a minor in oboe. And then you moved into the, the house where we are now in Northeast D.C.? No. Uh, the, I finished Howard in June of 1964, and then I was gone for three years. Uh, uh, I was in Paris. I lived in Paris from September of 64 to... Um, September of 65, and then I lived in Buffalo, New York from September 65 to May of 67. And then I moved back here and I lived with my aunt up the street a couple of blocks uh, from May until October, and then I moved in this house on October 13th, 1967. So I've been here 50 years. And we're just off of uh... South Dakota Avenue. Right. Mm hmm. Andrew, can you tell me a little bit about the music scene that was going on at that time in D.C. and talk about the JFK quintet that you were playing with? Yeah, I came up here. I was highly impressed when I came. I was uh, 18, I believe, 18 when I I got here. I was a jazz fan and everything. And there was quite a bit of jazz activity going on in the clubs here, especially. Uh, The concert scene was not something that I was uh, knowledgeable about, but the clubs. And so uh, I was adopted by... Billy Hart, the drummer, who was here, he's about a year older than I am, and he had heard that I was coming up here to go to Howard. So he adopted me as soon as we got here, and he took me around to some of the clubs. And to make a longer story short, the Bohemian Caverns is where uh, I made my first, um, played my first jam session in, in September of 1960 on a Saturday evening. And then uh, Tony Taylor was the owner part owner of the caverns and he heard me there and he approached me right there that Saturday afternoon to come back Monday night to sit in on Monday night which was the off night for the uh, regular working band which was Shirley Horn and her trio she worked from Tuesday through Sunday Monday night was off I played Monday night and then Tony hit on me right then in September take the Monday nights and, and, and bring a band in here so I worked Monday nights all the way from the end of September all the way down to the end of December. Tony approached me in, in, in the middle of December telling me that Shirley Horn's contract was going to expire at the end of December and if I could come in with the quintet that I was working with on those Monday nights. He could see that I was an organizer. And that's the JFK quintet. That's the JFK. It wasn't named that until right. we started. And who else was in that group? Okay, that, that group was, uh, the, the JFK quintet was Ray Codrington, was the trumpet player. 
Harry Kilgore, the father of Keith Kilgore, was the piano player. Walter Booker was the bass player. And we had three drummers throughout the life of the group. The first drummer was Billy Hart. Uh, he did not stay to work with us uh, starting in January of 61. He had a prior commitment. So Mickey Newman was the drummer for the pretty much life of the quintet. He had to go to the Army in, the, in, in December of 61. And so Joe Chambers took his place, and he finished out the tenure. And you guys became the regular band there? We, we, regular- were, we were what was considered the house band. We worked six nights a week, uh, basically 52 weeks a year. And how many sets a night? Between three and four. And then on, But Saturday night, Tony had an idea of jazz after midnight, Saturday night. And we went from t- t- uh, an extra from 12 at midnight to 3 in the morning. That was considered jazz after midnight. And then uh, what was the draw like? I mean, were the crowds, I know it's a small place. Uh, yeah, well, to me at that time, that was not a small place. I came from Nashville, and we had clubs much smaller than, than the caverns. It, it was uh, an international, to say the least, it was an international community. I was aware of all of this before I came to Washington. I'm business-oriented. I was aware that this was an international mecca. So we had a cross-section of, of clientele from all the way from local people who who live here and would come back and forth uh, regularly. And we had these interna- international people who came from different countries uh, into Washington for any number of reasons, as you know. We're known for that. Right, and so they would be either playing in their own group or they would mix with D.C. musicians? No, I didn't want to... The clientele, I'm talking about the audience. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Not and, then, music, no, and then what about the musicians? Nobody sat in with us. We, it was very rare. Right, and then the bands themselves did not mix either, correct? No, no. Uh, it was very rare. Uh, we, we did have maybe three people sit in with us over the whole two and a half years that we worked. Right, and your earlier point about the, the audience and the crowd were international because D.C. was sort of vibrant, recognized as an international jazz singer, I No, no, it wasn't that. Uh, I've always thought of D.C. as a B market. Mm-hmm. Uh, which it, it, it doesn't take down from A market or, or between A and C. It is B market, meaning that a lot of chances are taken artistically here that are not taken in New York. And Andrew, the JFK Quintet was playing, and you were playing in the regular Bohemian Caverns band. Were there other venues that you guys played? or did you No. Play? And no. did you play outside of D.C. at all? No. We went to Birdland one time in, I think, in April, maybe, of 1963 or late 62. That was the only time we went out of town. We we did maybe two or three engagements in town, away from the caverns. Uh, they were special engagements, but uh, in general, we did not go anywhere. We played at Howard University once or twice. Great. And then were there other big jazz names around playing at that time in D.C.? Uh, well, yeah, that, at that time, Charlie Bird was here, the guitar player. Um, he's the main luminary. Bill Harris, we had a lot of jazz players here. Bill Harris, the guitarist, was here. Buck Hill, who just passed, was here. And several people of that type of notoriety, but I never thought of them as, as uh, major league players because they did not make a career out of aiming for the uh, A-level of uh, the jazz business. They had opportunities. Some people took those opportunities momentarily, 
but they did not make a career, try to make a career out of the jazz business. And are there any other jazz venues in D.C. at that time that come to mind other than Bohemian Cabin? Yeah, uh, the main one to me was Abart's International Lounge around the corner from the cabins in the middle of the block of 9th Street and U. On, on 9th Street. And I used to walk around there a lot to hear bands on, on our breaks. At and the then cabins. U was kind of a jazz uh, jazz district of sorts. You I never thought of it that way, but it probably was, yeah. Because there were a lot of little clubs around there. And I, I, before I started playing in the cabins, Billy Hart took me to several little clubs in that area. But I never, I, because I wasn't from Washington, I, I did not have the... Uh, how you say, geographical type of approach to placement of places. So I didn't think of U Street. It, that became, the U Street Carter became a, a, a name during that time, but I never thought of it because I couldn't identify with it. Right, being a kind of an outsider. I was from Nashville. Right. Mm. Great, and I want to circle back on one more thing you said about uh, the concert scene in the early 60s here in D.C. Not too active. Yeah, I didn't know. No, I wasn't aware of see, because I was a full-time student at Howard and working full-time in the caverns. So I would, it wouldn't be any way for me to know what was going down because uh, I was just too involved. I couldn't go anywhere. You know, I was, the caverns were six nights a week. <laughs> and Howard was seven days a week. I said, you know, I am Zorro. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was quite rigorous for me and I, I was not aware of the concerts and, and the things that like happen now because the whole thing is turned around now this is a concert stop for, for many uh, uh, agencies and, and, and they book things based on concerts not just regular club gigs because we don't have that uh, I don't know anywhere that has a band for six nights a week you know and, and again I was savage I was aware that that whole period was passing while I was in the middle of it. I said, this is not going to last forever. And I look back at it now, and you say, we were there from January of 61 to October of 63. Hey, man, that doesn't exist now anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, Andrew, we've talked a little bit um, before about uh, how you describe yourself arriving in D.C. at that time as a quote, swaggering iconoclast with commercial intent and design in mind. And can you explain in more detail what that means? First of all, artistically speaking, and this is coming up more and more as I get older. I'm 75 now. As I get older, I have more references to my background in classical music. Okay, so there's one thing I learned about myself as a classical musician studying in Nashville as a youth. Uh, I was iconoclastic, and that has followed me all through my career. And ironically, at age 75, it is my iconoclasm, which is the root and the the core of my whole persona, business-wise as well as artistically. So I came up here from Nashville, and I was swaggering. I say that because I had the assurance of a swaggerer who is assured that he's correct in what he's thinking. I knew iconoclastically that I was considered an oddball player. I had a different um, saxophone sound, which got to be labeled chicken alto. And that I, I largely 
had that persona as an alto saxophone player because of my influence from classical music as an oboe player. So I came up here uh, with a not a saxophonist's acumen or sense of projection, but an oboe player's sense of projection. So I had I had many. I said had that was back then when I came up here. I had many qualities in my sound which uh, set me apart from everybody. But at the same time, iconoclastically, I had a different sense of texture and structure and all kinds of elements of classical music that I infused in my jazz persona. And nobody could tell what that was. And this is what attracted uh, cats to me, like Miles Davis and Coltrane and and Eric Dolphy and Johnny Griffith. All the cats who came through here were coming to check me out because of that. Because at that time, the, the stalwarts or the hallmarks of jazz were uniqueness and individuality. And this is 64, 65? No, no, it's 60. <laughs> I came in September 60, sounded like so that. So Miles and those guys? All heard, of those guys. Heard about you, heard word of mouth. All What's this Andrew White guy? I got to hear, check him out. And they knew that before I got here. See, because... There was a trumpet player who was a neighbor of mine in Nashville. His name was Wayman Reed. And he came up here. He's older. He was about two years older than I. He came up here to, but he was on the scene and he told everybody, as soon as he came on the scene, watch out for this bad alto player from Nashville who's coming here to go to Howard University. And he can transcribe music from recordings. You see, so I was all laid out before I got here. Now, alongside all of that is the fact that uh, not too many people, or nobody knew it then, but I was involved with business at that time. I I worked in my father's office for seven years. My father, the Reverend Andrew White, was the executive director of uh, of, uh, religious education for the AME Church, and I worked in his office. And this is in Nashville? In Nashville. So I wasn't aware of the, the um, influence of that contact until just maybe five years ago. I wrote about it in one of my books. But I inadvertently learned a lot about business from dealing in publishing, in the publishing wing of the AME Church, in his office, doing you know, all types of different ta- uh, tasks and, and you know, things like that, and just the general contact with that area. Uh, I was forced to go into business for myself. I sort of had a hint as to why I would have to do that before I came here to go to Howard, being a swaggering iconoclast. Because uh, at that time, as I said earlier, the uh, uh, uniqueness and individuality were the hallmarks of our industry at the time. It's not like that now. And so the my my classical input or classical music input into into my total persona, persona coupled with my business savvy and everything gave me an objective sense as to how I could fit into the industry and with all things considered if I didn't start Andrews music none of what you know me for or, or anybody knows me for today would ever exist and then so um, Andrew went to 
discussing art in the art world, I think most people are familiar with the notion of, in quotes, independent artist, which, you know, to me generally implies that the artist exists and operates independently, which means in the broadest terms, free of financial restrictions, the vision is pure, uncompromised. But when I use this term to describe you and your artistic life, you corrected me to say you were a self-producer. Can you explain the difference between yeah, those two? Yeah, the, the main difference is, is what you just said was quite eloquent and all, but it's quite erroneous because the, the, the definition of independence uh, has been uh, skewed to, to I, don't, I don't, I'm not sure how to say this, but it, it is, independence is not independence. Uh, people think you're independent because your name is on something and you this, you do this and you have take credit for this and so on. But the money is what determines what is independent uh, or, or a part of the other four leagues of the, uh, or the tiered uh, segments of uh, the industry. Those, those five leagues are major leagues, minor league, uh, second strain, independent and self-producers. Self-production, according to me and my dogma, means out of your pocket only. The day that you get a dollar from anybody else, you're not self-produced. A lot of people want to associate self-production with the glamour and the glitter of, you know, hands-on and so on and so forth. The fact is, is that if anybody puts a dollar into your business, they or you are beholden to them. I have never had any funding from, from anybody, so there's no paper trail from that perspective. That's that's the whole thing. And this is a model that's been in place since 19, early 60s, 50s? No, it's, ne- it's never been a model. Because even, even some... Uh, For you, sep- I mean. Huh? For you, I mean. I don't, I don't understand. I mean, for you, this is something that you've implemented for 50 plus years. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah, you're right, well that's it. And it, one dollar out, outside of your pocket is not self-production. Right. And then, so, a lot of articles discuss your years touring, playing electric bass for Stevie Wonder from 1968 to 1970, in the Fifth Dimension, 1970 to 1960, 19, sorry, 1976, sort of high-profile pro- groups there, and an electric bass and English horn on the studio recording uh, by Weather Report, Sweet Nighter, in 1973. Mm-hmm. Do you have any comments or memories or thoughts on those years? It's, it's been quite fascinating, quite rewarding, quite lucrative, but mainly being lucrative because I was able, while, while I was doing all this, I had a business approach to dealing with all of these levels uh, of the industry I was dealing on and I was able to capitalize on my appearances with those acts while I was there even more so since I've been gone from there but the main thing was that uh, nobody that I knew of at the time was ever enterprise or self-enterprising in terms of taking advantage of the opportunities that would come from the association with those people, like the Fifth Dimension, and what well, Stevie Wonder. He's, I think, he's probably the biggest one uh, for me. Because I mean, I still have people asking me. That's the number one question in Andrew's music: Was Stevie Wonder a real cool guy? And he ain't dead yet. 
right? But they speak of it in the past tense because it was back during six, what, 68 through 70, something. Was he a cool guy, you know? And I haven't seen him since then, so I don't know, but I get hellos from him and people tell me that, that he comments about me and all. We had a good time, and he, he, was, he played some good music. So he was a cool guy. Oh, yeah. Cool guy. I, and I always say, oh, yeah, he was a real cool guy. <laughs> but they don't say anything. They, they, they may ask me something about transcriptions or any of the other things that I do at Andrew's Music. But the first thing is Stevie Wonder. <laughs> was it a national and international tour? I was with him for two, uh, three years. And then there's one thing, there's another thing that most people don't know or realize is that I was with Stevie Wonder concurrently while I was with American Ballet Theater's principal old boys. So I was doing two two gigs for the same time, going back and forth. And American Ballet Theater was my first position. Stevie was my second position. So uh, adjustments were made mainly at Motown to accommodate my itinerary with American Ballet Theater. Most people don't know that they could, because Stevie's name is so big, you know, they don't think about American Ballet Theater. And what's the guy's name, the Russian guy? Uh, Baryshnikov. He he was with American Ballet Theater. So Stevie, <laughs> Stevie wanted Trump's him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what the what the transcripts means? What it, what does that mean to, to someone? Yeah, to, uh, I transcribe. This means I wrote down the improvisations of John Coltrane from sound sources, phonograph recordings, cassettes, reel-to-reel tapes, not CDs. CD, the CD thing is not amenable to that kind of work. So I've written all that down. My catalog is called is is titled "The Works of John Coltrane." Volumes 1 through 16, 800, it's a series of 840 transcriptions of John Coltrane's improvisations. And so they, those solos exist now for future scholars, researchers, and performers. Have been for the past 44 years. The first, the first set of solos came out in, in, uh, uh, on September 23rd, 1973. It was a series of 209. And incrementally over the years, I have increased that number up to 840. And yeah, they have been uh, tremendously received by the scholastic community. Uh, many of the repositories, libraries, and, and conservatories and universities house many of those transcriptions in, uh, in their libraries. Jocelyn was your wife in yes. over 41 years. Mm-hmm. You lost her in May of 2011. Yes. Can you tell us what her role was in your life then and now? I really, Well, first of all, I wrote, I've written a book about her. It's called uh, Hello, Jojo, and Welcome to Your New Life. I published that shortly after she passed. It came out in September of uh, 2011. She passed on May the 24th, 2011. Um she uh, she's just a, she's still with me by the way you know I, I haven't changed anything around here um, she's still her spirit and everything is here I met her in May of 1965 in Paris while I was a student there we maintained a relationship and we married on December 25th 1969 um, 
we're very, very close, and she was quite artistically oriented. She paint, she paints, or she painted, and she uh, wrote poetry, and um, we did we did a number of collaborations together. I did things at her school. She she brought me to her, her school. She was a, a teacher at the French International School, now known as Lycée Rochambeau, and uh, she was there. I think thirty five or thirty six years. And um, I, I don't know. She, she's she is. Well, look up there. You see that? She's Jocelyn White, Vice President of Andrews Musical. <laughs> Let's talk about some of your music. I came to you, and you selected two tracks from your 1974 release. Yeah, Passion Flower. Yeah, and that was recorded actually locally at Track Recorders in Silver Spring, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the credits are you were on. Tenor sax. Tenor sax, yeah. We have Steve Novosel, as we said, on bass. Uh, we had Keith Kilgo on drums, Kevin Tony on piano. Right. Both pieces were composed and arranged by you. Right. Can we talk about Shaft Blues? Shaft Blues and Superfly Blues, um, those names that people know about the black, what do they call it, black exploitation, black, black exploitation. movie. Yeah. I used those names for those two tunes largely because at the time that we made the record, in March of 1974, uh, there was some contention coming from an organization, I'm not going to call it that, uh, Kevin and Keith were part of a band that was more funk and, and um, uh, rock and roll oriented, right? And so it was it was brought to my attention that some, some people from that camp were not appreciative of them playing on my record. That was their first record with me, by the way. Because what that record, what Passion Flower is, is a straight-ahead jazz record. And uh, some, by some measure, people thought that that might have some confluence or whatever. Because these guys were rock? Well, they, yeah. That's, that's where that was coming from. The design of the record, so I made, made sure that the People involved with the, whatever was what they <laughs> whatever they were thinking. I wanted them to know that regardless to, of the commercial success that they had with their band, they could really play, and they and they they really played on that record. It's a great record. Uh, I received five stars in the Downbeat magazine for it. In the same issue, it was I think it's October twenty fourth issue, nineteen seventy. 74, yeah. In that issue, there were reviews of Sonny Rollins and Johnny Griffin. Neither one of them got five stars. I was the only one to get five stars <laughs> in that issue. It has done very well for us over the years. Uh, I just re-released it on CD about two years ago. It's still going very well. People and and over the years, you know, people have want, have wanted to purchase Passion Flower, and so finally. Uh, I had to reissue it on... In on, that format. I know the vinyl's out there, and it was um, self-produced at that time. Yeah. Your label, you Andrew's see. Music. Yeah, right. Product of you and your right. And Andrew's Music. Right. Now, that was my fifth record. That's AM5. That was the fifth record on Andrew's Music. And uh, it it gave me the biggest national and uh, international boost of any record that we've had. On, on the Andrews Music label because it was the first mainstream hard bop oriented type of record 
and it represented me tremendously well. And they're all good times, you know. Got a lot of airplay for those. And is there anything about Shaft Blues or Superfly Blues about the sound itself or anything we should be listening for? Well, yeah, both of them are takeoffs on, on Coltrane tunes. One, one reviewer referred to Superfly as a shameless steal of uh, Coltrane's, uh, I think it's one up and one down uh, blues. Coltrane played it in the same key. I played it in two keys. So that that's the change from that. And then the Shaft Blues is uh, a takeoff on Coltrane's training in tune. It's a long form, uh, 12, 12, 8, 12. It's a, it's a long long form tune. It's, but it's a good commercial tune, and it, it did very well for me in the uh, uh, adjunct, I call them adjunct markets for for jazz. For instance, out in um, California, one of the supermarkets used, used to use it in, in, in their music. <laughs> That's a sign of success if there ever was. Yeah, if you ever, <laughs> so yeah, so the, uh, that record has done very well for us over the years, and um, beyond just in sales itself, just the, the idea of it, because see, I was immediate. I followed it up quick. And as a matter of fact, we might say, you know, uh, nobody's ever done it like this. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Andrew. That's it? Thanks a lot. Well, I thank y'all. Come out and check us out. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> thank you very thanks, much. That was an interview with D.C. resident and music iconoclast Andrew White on D.C. Public Library Presents for Full Service Radio. Andrew will be a panelist tonight on Out There, the self-created artist in D.C., along with Bill Worrell, Blair Murphy, Cynthia Connolly, and moderated by Mark Minsker. Andrew's going to play a little music, too. So that's tonight, Tuesday, January 23rd at 6.30 p.m. at the Goethe Institute, 1990 K Street, Northwest D.C. The panel is sponsored by the D.C. Public Library Foundation and is always, yes, free. All ages and accessible, please come and meet and hear Andrew White. To learn more about the labs at the D.C. Public Library and library events, visit us at dclibrary.org or come to one of the 27 neighborhood branch libraries. That's the end of our show, but before we leave, let's listen to another of Andrew's compositions. This is Superfly Blues. Thank you, and have a good afternoon.
for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.